Our scripture reading for today will come from Mark, the 10th chapter, verses 17 through 31. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So it's the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Uh, If you are new with us today, we are glad that you're here. We we hope that you have come uh, to hear the gospel, to see Jesus, because we hope that's that's why you're here. We also just want to let you know that we are completely aware uh, that this is the, the first week of fantasy football. Which, uh, which means that if you use your phone as a Bible, you are a very suspicious person in this uh, church today. So if I see you looking down and I see that glare, I'm, just, I'm, not even, I'm not even thinking you're on the Bible. I'm just thinking you're looking at your fantasy sports. Um, so we, we're, we're talking about worldly wealth today, and I hope you know that fantasy football falls underneath the mammon category, okay? So just keep that in mind. Uh, we've been asking this question, what is a disciple? And here's where we've been so far. We have seen that a disciple is a student. That is, a disciple is someone who humbly comes to Christ in order to learn from Him and to find rest with Him. We've also seen that a a disciple is a servant. Namely, we serve through loving actions that rehearse the way that Jesus served us when He died, was buried, and rose again to wash away the stains of sin and guilt. Now we get to our third identity of a disciple today. Today we will see that a disciple is a giver. Now, the topic of giving has been abused much in recent times. Televangelists are infamous for calling people to give in order to buy their own blessing and favor with God. Show $1,000 in this ministry and you will reap material blessing around your, beyond your imagination. Right? We've, we've heard things like that before as we've turned on TBN and different things like that. 
Some preachers even employ shame and guilt as a motivation to increase giving. We can't really do this ministry without you, so we really need you to up them tithes. We know you bought the new car last week, so we hope you're increasing your giving with it. Okay, They employ that shame or that guilt, like almost as if, if you have anything, if you get anything new, then you must give because you would be shamed and, ashamed and guilty if you didn't. Some go so far to emotionally manipulate, right? We've all been in those kinds of services, right? Dim the lights, turn on the sappy music, throw up a few uh, slideshows of some people that look like they're hungry and starving. Don't let these people's blood be on your hands. We've all been through things like that. The sad result of this kind of preaching is that it has diminished the true glory of giving in the life of of a disciple. People are simply sick of hearing about it. Sometimes people even judge a church based on how often the preacher preaches about giving. It's been told to me in these last four years that one of the main reasons people like me is I haven't preached that much about tithing. Great. (laughs) Glad that's the main reason you like me. One sermon too many, and they're not coming back to that church because they're too focused on giving. Now, in many ways, the congregational eye rolls and the size are warranted. People are tired of finding the prosperity gospel to be false. They know that when preachers say things like, sow $1,000 and you'll reap 5000 they know that that's not true. They found that not to be true. They snuffed that out for what it actually is. They're tired of being emotionally manipulated and driven to despair. The problem at its root is not that people are unwilling to give. The problem at its root is a lack of clear teaching about the place of giving in the life of a disciple. It's a lack of clear presentation about what the Bible says is the heart, the motivation, the primary reason why we give. As we will see from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, there are three principles that we must keep in mind when it comes to being a disciple who gives. By the end, this is my one hope that I have in this sermon on giving, that you will see that a disciple is a giver whose giving visibly displays the infinite value of Jesus. Your giving is not meant to highlight how much you gave or how little you gave. Your giving is solely intended to be a visible display that you hold Jesus as your supreme, your primary, your only treasure. That you would give up all else for the sake of having him. Now, before diving into this text, I want to give a disclaimer. I, you know, As I was searching through scriptures that, dis- that describe disciples as givers... I passed over all the traditional giving text um, because I, I knew that at that moment uh, you would hear this text, you've heard it and used an out of context and in bad ways. So I wanted to start fresh. I wanted to find a text that's not directly about giving, but that begins about the heart. Because I think that's where a talk on giving actually starts. It's not about giving. It's about the state of our hearts, the state of our values. So Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, is not directly about giving. That's not the primary point of the text. The primary point of the text is humbly valuing Jesus above all else. It's not just about what you give, it's about what you have. You've got to take the greater context into consideration. Just before this passage... The crowds were coming to Jesus, bringing their children so that he could, he, could, he could bless them, lay his hand on their head and bless them. 
And the disciples, seeing that so many children are coming, they're starting to push the children back. And here's what Jesus says. He becomes angry at them and he rebukes them. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's strong words. Jesus welcoming little children in the simplicity of their faith, in the simplicity of their neediness and their helplessness, directly contrasts the story we're about to read about the rich young man who comes to Jesus. Whereas weak, helpless, needy children are given the kingdom of God, the powerful, the rich, the self-sufficient enter the kingdom only with great difficulty. Once again, we see that theme of great reversal. If you're not new to our church, you know that that is a, that's something that pops up in the text a lot. This theme of the high, the mighty, the proud, being brought low, being humbled, and the humble being exalted. It is this truth that the humble, specifically those who know they need Jesus, those are the people who are given the kingdom, not those who think they can buy it for themselves. When the rich young man came to Jesus, he did not come as a child. Instead, he came as a rich man, as a moral man, or as Luke says, as a ruler. In the eyes of ancient Judea, he would have been prime candidate number one, a shoe-in to eternal life. The theology of the day was that wealth and power were a sign of prosperity. Prosperity was a sign of blessing. If you had prosperity, you had favor with God. The prosperity gospel is not new. It goes all the way back to this ancient culture. So here this rich man comes, not hypocritically, but actually thinking he deserves the kingdom of God. Actually thinking he should be a shoo-in, that he has has unique favor with God. He has everything else except eternal life. Now, what does this passage have to do with giving or being a giver? And what does giving have to do with being a disciple? Well, as verses 21 and 22 will show, the one thing, the one thing that kept the man from being a disciple of Jesus was that he was unwilling to give. Specifically, even further, he was unwilling to give up the things he had to follow Jesus. In other words, his heart was so strongly tethered to his stuff that he would not leave them to follow the Savior. This demonstrates, I think, that disciples are those who are willing to empty their hands of worldly wealth in order to cling to the treasure of heaven, Jesus himself. Not some uh, metaphorical jewels or some uh, uh, iconic crowns, but, but to cling to the true treasure of heaven, which is Jesus himself. We simply cannot hold on to our earthly things, our boats, our fishing nets, our, our tax collecting booths, our homes, or even our families, and simultaneously follow Jesus wholeheartedly. To follow Jesus, to treasure Jesus, requires our exclusive devotion and affection. So you, you see already up front that this sermon and this text has little to do with what you have or how much you have. This text from the beginning deals with how you see what you have, how you cling to what you have, or, in hope, how you cling to Jesus tighter than the things that you have. So, now we're set up. 
That's the disclaimer that I've given you. We're ready to study this text and to see these three principles of giving. The first principle this text teaches about giving is that it reminds us what is truly valuable, the real treasure. Verse 17 begins like this, and he, Jesus, and, and, and if, you're, if you've got your Bibles, read it, just read it as I read it. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now at the outset, all seems to be in place, right? The man came to Jesus. That's great. He knelt before him. That's great. Applaud him for that. He even goes so far to call Jesus a good teacher. The man's attitude toward Jesus, at least initially, makes him out to be a prime candidate, a prime prospect to be a disciple. He clearly respects Jesus. He clearly reveres him as a a good teacher. He even acknowledges that he needs Jesus to teach him how to get eternal life. Now, here's the kicker. Even with this posture, the seemingly great posture, with his respect and his reverence, the man's inward posture is all wrong. It's all wrong. Jesus' words highlight the man's error. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some have wrongly looked at this text and said, See, Jesus isn't claiming to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. He's here saying that he's not good and only God alone is good. That doesn't seem to be in context with what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, the opposite is true. The man called Jesus a good teacher and then proceeds to ask Jesus what he himself could do to earn eternal life. Notice he doesn't ask, how can I receive eternal life? He doesn't ask, can you give me eternal life? He asks, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. Jesus' question addresses the fact that the man had not yet seen who Jesus really is. The man came to him as a good teacher who could teach him how to accomplish his own salvation. Teach me how to earn for myself eternal life. Instead of coming to him as a good God who could save him. There's an infinite distance in that kind of posture. One that says, Jesus, show me, how to be, show me how to earn my salvation. And another one that comes to Jesus humbly and says, save me. Even if you show me, I couldn't do it. Save me. He might have been kneeling on the outside. Everything might have looked great on the outside. But on the inside, he was still standing in his own self-sufficiency. He wanted an eternal life he could get for himself. Now, verse 19, Jesus goes on to lay out the law. So he continues on. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. To this, the man responded, Teacher, I have kept all these I have kept from my youth. Now, instead of seeing the law in the way that it was intended, which we know from Romans 3.20, the law is given not to highlight yours, yours and my righteousness. The law is given actually to highlight our unrighteousness. That It's meant to show us that we are sinners, not that we are godly. The law is laid down so that you, can I, you and I can see how we have fallen short of God's standards. This man, however, looks at the law as proof of his, as his perfection. 
Now, what's funny about this story is if you go to the other Gospels, go to, go, go to the Gospel of Matthew or go to the Gospel of Luke, you see what's in this man's mind. He's looking at this law as if, as if it was a checklist of self-righteousness, things that he's accomplished, more things to be added to his wealth. Look at all of his moral riches. I've done all these things. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he goes so far to say, what do I still lack? He doesn't see his poverty. He doesn't see how empty he is. He doesn't see how broken he is. He sees himself as someone who is already full and just has a little bit more to get. What do I have left? Now, it's easy for us as modern readers to become frustrated by the man's self-righteousness. We read the story, and clearly, we, we see this guy as a villain. Even on that we ourselves as modern readers often think the same way and count our own self, self-righteousness as currency for why we should be able to buy eternal life. But Jesus doesn't respond in frustration or agitation. He responds in love. It was a response of compassion. Here's what, he, here's what it says in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He had pity on the man. The man was blind to see how much material wealth has covered over his eyes. To see how his moral excellence had actually ripped out the eyes of his heart to see the corruption that was there. He loved him, and it was in love, not in frustration, not in anger. He's not shouting at the man. I hear Jesus in his tone to, be, to have a tone of complete pity for this man. Almost maybe even having tears in his voice. You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The words of the Bible are important here. Jesus says you lack how many things? One thing. One thing you lack. But then he goes on to give the man four commands. Go, sell, give, and follow. So so how is it that those four commands address the one thing that the man lacks? Well, go, sell, and give have to do with all the things that the man already has. Go, sell, give. All the stuff that you already have. What's the one thing that the man lacks? Jesus, follow me. That one last command, follow me, addresses the lack in the man's life. He had it all. He had everything. He had the scope of everything everyone wanted. He had comfort. He had possessions. He had power. And he lacked one thing. Jesus. Jesus' commands invite the man to a treasure exchange, to trade out his treasures, to give up the temporary treasures he, has curr- he currently has for the eternal treasure, singular, that he does not have. Borrowing from the words of Jim Elliot, Jesus invites the man to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The man came to learn what he must do to inherit eternal life, but Jesus told him who he must follow. To have life. He flips the man's question upside down. Now, how did the man respond? It says this in verse 22. Disheartened. By the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, the word disheartened is a bit light for our translation. The actual word is the man went away shocked. 
absolutely appalled. You want me to do what? You want me to give up how much of my possessions? You want me to trade how much of my earthly treasures? He heard the words of Jesus from Jesus' own mouth, how to get eternal life, which was to follow Jesus. And he simply could not give up his stuff. He looks forward to what Jesus is saying and saying, hey, listen, if you want eternal life, you have to treasure me above all the possessions that you have. Are you willing to live a life without your stuff and have Jesus? Or do you have a life that is unwilling to live without stuff, but to live without Jesus? That's what the man is making a choice of here. He's looking ahead to his life, and he says that life without all of his things is simply not worth it. I mean, to give up his stuff, to give up his things, to do what Jesus said, to do that treasure exchange, would have been an admission of Jesus' sufficiency. He would have been admitting in the way that he sells and goes and gives up that Jesus is enough. It would have been a resignation of his own self-sufficiency. The fact that he's a ruler means that his power is attached to his possessions. He would have been giving up himself his title, his rights, his influence, and saying, you know what? I am not self-sufficient. I need Jesus. Jesus is self-sufficient. Now, here's what's happening under the surface. The man has been shown the pearl of great value. Now, in the parable, what happens when the man finds the pearl of great value? He goes, he sells all that he has, and he purchases the pearl because it's worth all that he has. It's more than worth all that he has. This man sees the pearl of the great... He's the inverted parable. He's the man who finds the pearl of great price and refuses to give up what he has and goes home back to his dusty old junk and forsakes the majestic pearl. That's the tragedy of this text. The root of the problem with this man is that he had poorly evaluated poorly estimated his wealth. He weighs it out and he thinks his wealth is far more important, far greater value than Jesus. Why is giving such an important aspect of the Christian discipleship? Giving reminds us that Jesus is the true treasure. When we willingly part, and when I say giving, we're not just talking about money. When we willingly part with our time, our money, our possessions, our energy, the people we hold dear. We do so because we know we can never live apart from Christ. You can take everything we have and we will still live. You take away Jesus and we die. So we willingly part with the things that we can part with as an expression, as a visible display that there is one that we cannot live without. We give up that which is of lesser value to display the one who is invaluable. We empty our hands of the world's treasures so that we may cling to the king, the jewel, the pearl of heaven itself. That's what giving does for us. Now, second principle that this passage teaches about giving, is that giving reminds us that worldly wealth is dangerous. Worldly wealth is dangerous. Notice I didn't say it's bad. I said it's dangerous. 
After the man went away shocked and saddened by Jesus' words, Jesus, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said to them, almost in, the, in this, this tone of lament, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on to explain further, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Complete another shock and awe in that, in that day's culture. When, whereas little children are just given the kingdom, to them belongs the kingdom of God. The wealthy and the prosperous enter it only with great difficulty. In fact, Jesus proclaims it as if it's near impossible. It would be easier for a massive behemoth like a camel to go through the smallest hole that we know than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. Now remember, in that day and age, to be prosperous was a sure sign of goodness and favor with God. So in other words, those who had wealth, Jesus is saying, even those who would seemingly on the outside be shoo-ins into the kingdom, even with all their stuff, even with all their signs of blessing and prosperity and their apparent signs of favor with God, it is still impossible for them to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The wealthy, the great, the powerful cannot enter into the kingdom of God on their own. Now that would have been extremely, extremely uh, just awe-striking. In fact, it says in verse 26 that the disciples became exceedingly astonished. You just see mentally their jaws drop at this. This is incredibly Hard theology. Jesus turns the disciples' prosperity theology upside down. Now here's the question. Why is it so difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? The rich man's view of himself gives us the answer. First, you ready for this? Wealth tends to blind people of their spiritual prosperity. Wealth has a blinding effect to those who have it. Not everyone who has wealth is blind, but I'm saying that wealth is dangerous because it can blind you to your spiritual prosperity. That is, when a person lacks nothing financially, he or she is tempted to think that they lack nothing, period. Hence the man's question, what do I still lack? When our hands are full, our, hand, our hearts do not seem so empty, do they? When our bellies are full, we don't necessarily think about how starved we are, For the grace and the mercy of God. Wealth makes us comfortable. So sometimes we do not feel how uncomfortable it is to be at enmity with God. Wealth, when it is not viewed cautiously, is a soft pillow that lulls you into spiritual sleep. That's why wealth is so dangerous. That's why to be wealthy and to enter into the kingdom of God is so difficult. Because wealth blurs the eyes. To your real spiritual need. Second, wealth deceives us about its worth. It actually lies about its value. It claims to be more valuable than it really is. Why did the rich man go away sad? Verse 22. For he had great possessions. Simply put. He had a lot of things. 
To think about life without those things was simply too much to bear. They were too invaluable. He had too much things around him just to make his heart happy. These things were, were his sufficiency. These things were his joy. These things were his wealth, his riches in life. And he would rather live with his precious treasures than to live with the invaluable Son of God. Wealth had blinded his eyes. It had lied to him that it is priceless. That to have a big house, that to have a nice chariot, to have many horses, to have lots of gold, to have a title, to have power, to have influence, that that was too invaluable to lose for the sake of Jesus. He'd been lied to, miscalculated the pricelessness of the Savior and the worthlessness of his stuff. How many of you have ever been to an estate sale? Have you ever just walked into an estate sale and feel like, man, it's utterly futile? I don't go to estate sales. I go to garage sales sometimes. Um, not by choice. Um, when I walk into estate sales, I leave utterly depressed. Because it's like, you know what? This is what it's all heading to. Someone's going to have to barter off all my junk. For a few coins. Don't they know how precious my books are to me? Don't put them in 25 cent bins. (laughs) Don't you know that I've accumulated a lot of crap? And it has cost thousands of dollars to accumulate that stuff. And one day, all that stuff is going to be sold for whatever pocket change someone happens to have with them. Man, the guy could not see far enough ahead. He could only see what was at that moment. He couldn't take it with him. He thought it was too valuable. He thought it was too precious. And yet the man still died and all of his stuff got sold away. We don't even know the man's name. He couldn't give up his power and his influence. And yet we don't even know who he was. There's no, I've been to Israel. There's no sign outside of his property. Here lived the rich young man. It's gone. My friends, do not let wealth blind you. Wealth is dangerous because the more you have of it, the harder it is to see. The more you have of it, the more lies you hear that it is more valuable than it really is. Any of us who started off poor and have gradually made more money can attest to that, that there is a big temptation that the bigger the house, the nicer the car, the bigger the stuff, the better the stuff, the nicer the TV, the more we think that's what we must live with, what we must have. It becomes the new, what we call, standard of living. Every year we expect raises to to be a raise of standard of living. Don't you know my standards are higher this year for living than they were last year? I got three inches on my TV. That means next year I better be adding six inches. The standard goes higher and higher and higher, and yet... Is all buying into the to the blind and the bluff. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying wealth is inherently bad. I am not saying that rich people are blind or lied to. I'm saying that wealth in and of itself is dangerous. 
in and of itself, not the people that have it. There are lots of examples of wealthy people who use their wealth wisely. Joseph of Arimathea paid for Jesus' funeral and gave up his own tomb to fulfill prophecy. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. We have another example of Barnabas. Barnabas was clearly a wealthy man. He was wealthy enough to be able to sell property and personally fund the first mission trips of the kingdom of God. So being rich and having wealth and having stuff is not the problem. That's not what Jesus is against here. Here's the thing about wealth. Wealth can either be a sword that you use to advance the kingdom or it will be a sword that you will fall on to your own death. It can either be a good tool or a bad tool. Now, to, to a man who is wise and knows what he's doing, a hammer is an invaluable tool, right? You simply cannot build without a hammer. But in the hands of someone like me who doesn't know what they're doing, a hammer is a dangerous weapon. I have smashed many a thumbs on a hammer. So it's not the hammer, or, or it's not having the hammer. It's the way you use the hammer. It's the way you use your wealth. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6.10. Paul warned, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. You hear that? Not through the money. But through the craving for money, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves, have fallen on the sword with many pangs. I mean, we all do it. We all get into debt to keep up an image. We've got tons of Rolexes hanging up over our leaky faucets. We've got BMWs parked outside of the apartment complex. Right? We, we know what it's like to keep up this image because we feel like this is what we must have. Titles and things behind our names. And, and yet, it's, simply, it's, that, it's that simple craving to have more of that that makes wealth such a dangerous weapon. The question then is not how much do you have. It's not even how much are you giving. The question is, do you see your wealth as something that is securing you, something that is giving you security, or is it something that you would happily give away to show that the true sign of security is faith in Christ? Do you build up your wealth, your bank accounts, as if they are your refuge? Do you build up your homes, your possessions, your nice furniture, your big TVs, because they are a way just to kind of lull you into the sleep of life? So that you can get through the hard things. Or do you realize that TVs can be used as a way to build the kingdom of God? Fellowship time. Watch football games together and pray for people. Eat together. Love one another. Using the big homes to to house someone who needs help. Using your car to drive the kingdom, literally drive the kingdom, driving people to church, driving food, food to people's house, driving meals to places that people who can't drive can't go out and get their own food. Do you see your wealth as a tool? Not as the source of security and happiness. Now the key to keeping wealth in its 
proper place is to remember that it cannot save. It simply cannot provide satisfaction. How many of you have money and just say, I am completely satisfied and I have never had an unsatisfying day? Nobody would say that, right? And if you are satisfied, it wouldn't be because you had lots of stuff, right? I mean, you get the new thing and you realize it was smaller than it was on the advertisement. Or you buy the new car and you get the scratch on it two days later. Or, as is the case with me, you get the new car and your kid has a leaky diaper in it. (laughs) And from here on out, in that nice car that's got low mileage and lots of great amenities to it, I mean, it has... It has Apple Play in it. It's amazing. Plug in your phone and your car turns into kit. It's just amazing. Just the robot car from heaven. And yet, driving this nice car, I still distinctly smell Titus. (laughs) As a reminder that this thing is incredibly futile and temporary. In their astonishment, the disciples asked Jesus. From the diapers back to the disciples. Here we go. Then who can be saved? That's a fair question. If the rich and powerful cannot buy their way into the kingdom of God, then who, who else has hope? If the big and the tall and the strong and the mighty cannot make their way into the kingdom of God, then what hope does little old me have? Here's what Jesus says. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. In this, Jesus is showing that salvation is completely dependent on God. He turns their eyes, he turns their focus to God. Rich men cannot enter the kingdom of God on their own. Poor men cannot enter the kingdom of God on their own. Camels do not pass through the eyes of needles on their own. Only with God are these things possible. Rich men... Poor men, great men, lowly men, beautiful women, homely women, black people, white people, Asian people, career builders, career jumpers, homeowners, homeless people. They all can be saved only in one way. Salvation is possible only in one way. This is the great leveling of the whole earth. You know, you hear that phrase that death is the great equalizer. No, no, no. Salvation is the great equalizer. Jesus is the great equalizer. Because it doesn't matter how tall you are or how short you are, you must bow before you come into his door. Everyone bows. My friends, salvation is possible only because of God. Wealth is dangerous because it deceives us into thinking that we are capable more than what we really are. If I had more stuff, I'd have more influence. If I'd have more stuff, I could do more things. If I had more stuff, people would respect me more. If I had more stuff, people would like me more. We might be capable of buying new cars. We might be capable of buying new houses, new clothes, but we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. With all your capabilities... With your growing 401k, your growing income, guess what? One truth still stands the same. Redemption cannot be purchased by money. The currency for redemption is not gold and silver and dollar bills and credit scores and uh, 
bank loans. It's not borrowing on your equity. The currency for salvation is made only by the currency. Guess what? Are you ready? What buys redemption? Peter says this. The precious blood of Jesus. Precious blood of Jesus. Literally liquid gold. Crimson gold. That's what buys your redemption. Nothing else can. Giving reminds you of that. Sure. Give away what I can't keep so I can have what I cannot lose. Take money because I don't need it to survive. My life is dependent on God. My salvation is dependent on the sovereign Savior. Take it all. Burn it all. And guess what? At the end of the day, I didn't need it anyway because not one cent of it could buy my place in the presence of God. That has been purchased for me, not by me. It has been purchased not by my money. It has been purchased by His blood. Giving constantly reminds us of that. Now, on to the third and final principle. The third principle about giving is that giving reminds us that everything, everything, even the rewards we will receive in heaven is given by grace. Peter was watching all this closely, right? I mean, Peter's standing there. He's like watching this rich young man. And knowing Peter, he probably admires the rich young man. I mean, he has the same Jewish mentality of, of uh, prosperity equals blessing with God. So he's seeing this rich man go, oh, here's someone that God really likes. Let's see what happens. So he's watching all this. He hears the, the uh, words of Jesus. And he starts to think for himself here. Verse 28. It says that he began to say, because I don't think he got the full thought out. But here's what he says. See, literally Jesus, look, we have left everything and followed you. Sounds noble, right? We're not like him. We left all of our possessions. My boat's still in in Nazareth. My dad's still there waiting for us to come back from our lunch break. My fishing fishing nets are still in the water. We've left it all and followed you. Here's what he's asking. So what do we get? What do we get? We gave it all. He doesn't think much different from the rich young man, in all honesty. Because at the root of their, their hearts, at the root of their minds, here's what, they're at, here's what they're thinking. They think of their works. They think of what they've done as currency that will buy them favor and redemption with God. Rich young man, what must I do? Look at all I have. What can I do to have Eternal life, Peter says, look, we have given it all. We don't have anything left because we gave it all. Now what will we get for it? It's just a simple, I gave to you, now you give back to me kind of mentality. I have bought this. I have earned this. Now there's a great author named Jerry Bridges who, uh, he's dead now. He's gone, gone on to heaven uh, to be with God. He's an amazing author, Christian writer. And he writes in the book, Transforming Grace. Here's what he says. He comments on Peter's statement. We are all legalistic by nature. That is, we innately think so much about performance, about what we do, by us, earn so much blessing from God. In other words, the equation is my performance equals however much blessing I get from God. Peter had already added up his merit points, is what Jerry Bridges says. He already added up his merit points and wanted to know how much reward they would buy. Jesus, I left it all, so how much do I get? 
Now, before we condemn Peter in, uh, because of his foolish thinking, we can all hail on Peter, right? But in reality, we're, we're all Peter. We must consider how we do the same. How often do we see our good works as currency that will earn us, here's the, here's the famous quote, jewels in heaven. I mean, don't we talk about people like, oh yeah, that man has many jewels in heaven. I don't know what jewels he has, but every time I hear that, I'm like, well, how can I get the jewels in heaven? <laughs> do what that guy does, right? Give lots of money. Go to church a lot, right? Well, we, the thing about the people we talk about, that the jewels in heaven, they, these are typically that give tithes. These are typically that go to, people that go to church. They volunteer. They evangelize. Sometimes they preach. And somehow we think that all those works equal up currency that are marks of merit that will someday be tabulated, and here's what you get for what you've done. Now Jesus subtly but profoundly corrects this view. Listen to what he says. This is why you must read Scripture out loud and slowly. Listen to this, because you can highlight it. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Now listen to this. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Now buried in this sentence is, that, is this correction. There is not one who leaves behind everything for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold back and in addition eternal life in the age to come. How many of you took accounting in college? Okay, yeah, that that explains a lot about our church. Um, (laughs) When you guys go out to the community, look for people who are good at math and invite them, okay? Do the math. A 1 to 100 ratio is not fair, is it? This isn't a meritorious system that Jesus is presenting here. He's not saying, hey, everything you give, you'll get back. That's, that's what a, a, an investment or a, a loaner might say. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, everything you'll give, you'll get a hundredfold back. Wait a second, Jesus. Let me, just, let me give my poor accounting advice here. You're going to lose money on this. You're going to pay everyone who's giving you one of something with a hundredfold back? That means if they give a dollar, you give them a hundred dollars? Not, not real. That's prosperity gospel. I'm just saying as an example. Okay, let's just don't all give a dollar and expect it to grow to a hundred. What I'm saying is if you give one, you're going to get a hundred back? Wait a second. That's not fair. What kind of reward system is that? These people don't deserve a hundred for one. Here's the key. You can give nothing. You can receive nothing, not even your rewards in heaven. Your jewels in heaven will be more than what you deserve. They will not be what you earned. The crowns we read so much about, the jewels we talk so much about, the rewards in the life to come, the mansions of glory that people so often like to think about, Guess what, my friend? If you make it into a mansion in glory, it ain't because you deserved it. It's not because you tithed enough. It's not because you gave enough. It's not because you volunteered enough. 
if you end up in glory at all, it's because of grace. Let's just think about the math of what we do deserve. We give one, we should get nothing. What, what do we give God, or what do we give to God that he does not already deserve? That's not already his. We get one, we get nothing. That's fair, okay? What's not fair is what we get one, and we get eternal life. If Jesus did nothing else than that, if Jesus did nothing else but gave us eternal life, it would be enough. It would be more than enough. It would cover all the enoughs we could ever think about. But Jesus doesn't just give eternal life. He gives rewards that are a hundredfold, that are more than we deserve. Even our rewards waiting for us in heaven are given by grace, my friends. Giving reminds you that you are not buying future jewels. You're not giving crowns. I hate to tell you this, but when you put money into the tithing plate, when you come and volunteer, when you give to the building fund, when you give to the pastor's salary, Brandon specifically, when you give to, to the needy, when you give your energies, when you give your time, whatever it is, whatever you give, you are not earning up for yourself treasures in heaven. Because you don't earn treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven is given, not bought. It's given. It's given by grace, not by merit. Peter's like, look, Jesus, we gave it all, so what do we get? Jesus' answer is simply this. You get far more than you deserve. Guess what, Peter? You gave a lot, yeah. No matter if you gave it all. You gave your house, you gave your brother, you gave your sister, you gave your daughter, you gave whatever it is to God. Whatever you give. Guess what? When you get things back, you will still be dumbfounded by God's grace. There will not be one of us in heaven who see the treasures of heaven and say... Look what I bought. Look at what I did. Look at all this stuff that I've gotten because of my good life. Not one of us will be saying that. We'll all be dumbfounded, speechless, because we will see these things that we have not deserved. That was given by grace. Now, Jesus always gives out of abundance of his grace, not out of the abundance of our merits. He does not need your wealth. He is wealthy enough. And everything we give is simply a mirror image of what he is worth, of what he is, of how he is valuable. Now, he ends with a warning, verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It gives an important application. My friends, are you running a rat race? America is known for, we coined that term, right? And when we coin that term, we think, of, we think of people as these little white rats that we put in the maze and we're trying to see which one is smart enough, cunning enough, and which one can follow the treats enough to get to the end to the big treat. And who's going to get there first? Who's going to have the best titles? Who's going to have the most money? Who's going to have the most influence, the most prestige? Who's going to be on top? Jesus gives a warning. When you think about material things, remember this. That there's a day coming when there's a guaranteed reversal. Those on top come down, those on bottom go up. You know what that means? We shouldn't be racing to be first. We should be racing to be last. 
Get rid of the attachments. Preach the gospel to yourself so that every time you walk into your house, you do not see yourself as walking into your kingdom. Look at your house. It may even be helpful for you to put up on the wall. To, it, I would love to go to a house dedication to where somebody would put this on their wall. To future firewood. How great would that be? What a great perspective. Enjoy the house. Live in it. Use it for the glory of God. But you live in nothing more than a matchbox that will blow up in flames. That's a hard... I tell you, my friends, sweat and agony and weeping and gnashing of teeth for a preacher is a sermon like this in middle America. I live in Ovilla, Texas, where the annual income is 90 grand. That's not my income, but where the annual income is 90 grand. If I want to go door knocking, I have to jump over a private yard fence. This is a hard lesson for us as Americans to learn because we have been so wealthy for so long. You're like, ah, you don't understand. My friends, I have been to other countries. I have seen true poverty. I have seen cardboard boxes. I have seen people without clothes. I'm telling you, you may think you have nothing. You are extremely wealthy people, which means you are all in danger, including myself. You know how many times I've looked at our budget and I don't respond in faith that God will provide and that God gives what I need. But I look at this budget and I think, oh, I got to find a way to make more. What can I do? Can I write a book? Can I get some extra royalties for things? Maybe I can teach a class, get a little extra money. How many times do we think, first and foremost, what can I do to get more? My friends, don't fight to be first. Fight to be last. The less you have as you go through your life, it is actually a better thing. Downsizing is great. That's a great application. Fight to be last. But know that even in downsizing, it's not the fact that you're giving away your junk. It's the fact that you have a heart to see it as junk. That's the true victory in the soul. It's the heart to see that Jesus is truly valuable and all your stuff is not so valuable. To do different than what the rich young man did. Rich people get into heaven. Jesus said it's possible with God. But those rich people that get into heaven don't get in because they have wealth or because they give away wealth. They get into heaven because they treasure Jesus. That's it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give for his soul? I know I'm long on time, but I cannot end this without pointing to the gospel. When we think about the young man, we must think about the gospel. The young man was unwilling to leave behind his riches to follow Jesus. And likewise, many of us squirm when we think about what it means to leave behind ourselves, at least emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever you want to think about it. We, we squirm when, it thinks about, when we think about giving up our children, for example. To, to, to treasure your children less than Jesus. 
to just as a personal application, to treasure adorable, chunky little Titus less than Jesus. To find the truth that I am held by God better than the fact that I can hold little Abigail. That is difficult. To think that my house that I love, that I cherish, is temporary. And that to be houseless in the new creation with Jesus is far better. To think about giving up a car that I like, that gives me independence. And to think that 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 itself is temporary and on its way out and is passing away. And when it dies, I must not shed a tear for it. Because if I lose my car, I have lost nothing. It's amazing to think about how hard it is to get there. And yet it gets easier when we think about disciples as those who give because they merely follow the greatest giver. The greatest giver. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives a, gives a, a, a call to the Corinthian believers. There are saints at this time who are being persecuted. They have lost houses. They have lost mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children. They have lost people, and they are broken, and they need help. And so he gives a call to give relief. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 9. Why does Paul say they must give? Here's why. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We are disciples who give because Jesus gave himself. We are disciples who who give up all the junk if we need to. Because Jesus traded his heavenly throne for a wooden cross. He gave up divine rights to be hit and spat upon. He gave up the audible praises of Gabriel and Michael and all the glorious angels. He gave them all up to be mocked and humiliated. Why? Why did he leave his seat in heaven? So that we, according to Ephesians, would be raised up. And seated with him in the heavenly places. He gave up his wealth so we could share his wealth. He gave up his treasure of glory so that we could share in the glory. And not just that, but from now until the end of eternity, he, because of his death and his resurrection, we now will be shown the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Wait a second, I thought we already had that. We do, and we will continue to have it. Immeasurable riches of God's kindness. On and on and on and on. We sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed. And so as disciples, we follow our master. And we give in ways that reflect the value of what he gave. So disciples, give. Because Jesus gave. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you take these words that have been long spent. Father, it took a long time to get out what I should have probably said in just a few minutes shorter. But yet, God, you are the God whose word doesn't return void. 
So, Father, I pray that whatever seed your spirit has thrown in the lives of these people, whatever water that you have sent, whatever sun that you have given uh, to shine on uh, their growth, Father, I pray that they will grow, that they will value the world less and treasure Jesus more. That's our prayer. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.